And at the end of the day, that is what design does. Design allows you to get very close to people that you are serving, that you are working for, that you are working with, to say, what do they really need? Not even what they say they need, because a lot of times people aren't able to articulate it, and sometimes they even like lead you astray. But can you observe what's going on in their life? Hey guys. Hey everyone. Welcome back to Mom, I Got This with Stanford Women in Design. I'm Em. And I'm Iz. And we're rising sophomores at Stanford online trying to navigate the world of design post-college. And you guys, we're definitely beginners here. So we're super excited to let our curiosity guide our discussion on how other successful women have figured out what the heck they wanted to do. And created the lives and careers they love. Today, we're jumping into the big questions. What exactly is design? And how is it different than pure creativity? Who are designers? And what does it mean to educate people through design thinking? We're so thrilled to have Lisa K. Solomon with us as our first guest to walk us through these questions. Lisa is a renowned author, design educator, and thought leader. We can't wait to find out what we'll learn from her story. So let's jump into the conversation. Thank you so much. It's really, really fun to be here. I love, love the whole theme of this podcast. I'm still saying, Mom, I got this. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So I currently am a designer in residence at the Stanford D School, which is officially known as the Hasso Plotner Institute of Design. And I'm an educator. I'm an author. Um, I'm a Designed for good person. Um, So the cliff notes of what I do is that I try to help leaders of all ages, starting with our youngest in K-12, to learn the skills that will enable them to thrive in an increasingly complex and uncertain world. Uh, And my goal is to help people realize that they have more agency than they think they do that just because the world feels like it's becoming more and more complex and harder to predict, it doesn't mean we are powerless. It doesn't mean we are without options. And so my number one goal and what I think about almost every day is how can I help others feel like that they have choice in a world that feels like it is spinning out of control. I love that. That is partially why we're here, why we started this whole thing is to help young people realize they have choice and help them figure out how to make those choices even. That's amazing. Yeah, definitely. I think in high school and like early years of college, especially when you don't really know what direction to go in, figuring out which choices to make is such a tough thing and sometimes can make you feel like, well, I don't have control of my life or I don't have control of what happens. And so we're really excited to kind of explore this and show people that their choices in their lives um, can really impact where they go. So yeah. yeah. So speaking of college, can you take us back to what college was like for Lisa? What did you do? What did you like? Well, one thing to know about me is that although I'm living in the Bay Area, very close to Stanford University, I am from Philadelphia originally, and there's not a day that goes by where I'm not pulling on my Philly roots. 
uh, as a Philadelphia uh, native, I wanted to stay on the East Coast uh, and ended up going to Cornell University, which was a really fabulous place for me because it allowed me to just get exposed to so many more things in the world. I mean, growing up in Philadelphia was great, but it was also kind of small. And at Cornell, you know, just got to meet so many people from around the world and got a chance to have a liberal arts education. I was a government major primarily because I was so influenced by my beloved high school teacher, Mr. Nikolai, who taught me international relations. And it was such a cool class. Every day we walked in and our textbook was the New York Times. Like we all had these and we would open up the paper and we would say, what should we talk about today? And it was the most dynamic, engaging class because it was connected immediately to what was unfolding in the world. And so I decided to be a government major to pull on that passion and um, really allowed me to connect some theory to what was happening in every day. And I think more than anything, I was just insatiably curious. And Cornell, because it's big and it actually has seven different schools, I was able to take classes in different schools. Like I remember being a sophomore and taking a master's class in the School of Hotel Administration, which was cool. And I know given what I do now, I sometimes think that I should have been what's called a hotelie because they're very much (laughs) in some ways teaching design and how to actually be in the service business. Um, but I just, it really opened up my, my aperture of what was possible. And I think that really seeded the groundwork for being curious. Yeah. Was there a extracurricular that you were particularly engaged in or that you were like totally obsessed with? It's funny that you say that you're taking me back. I, uh, I was <laughs> on tennis player. So I was really proud of the fact that oh. I uh, was a tennis player in high school and I was good, not great, but I managed to get on the varsity team. And that was a really great experience. Although at wow. the time we were not very good. I mean, to be clear, but I was very proud of one rookie of the year, which was a proud moment. That's awesome. Um, and, but, you know, honestly, um, I did not love the sport. I mean, I didn't love competing and tennis is a pretty hard sport. And my sophomore year, I decided it really wasn't making me happy. And so I made a brave decision to not play anymore, which for many was like, wait, what do you mean? You're going to quit a varsity college tennis sport. Um, but I, I just really felt like I was spending 20 hours a week doing something that I just didn't feel like my best self at. And so that gave me a time to do some break and uh, give break. And I actually ended up um, becoming a bartender. <laughs> so, oh, fun! Interesting conversation. Um, hey, mom, I got this. I'm quitting my varsity <laughs> athletic career to become a bartender uh, <laughs> because I absolutely loved it. I mean, I learned so much about people and about how people interacted and what they were looking for, and it was really a masterclass in and of itself. Mm-hmm. And I now have two teenage daughters, and I tell them that I got paid to play and I got paid to learn. And I'm just so, so grateful for that experience. Not to mention, I know how to make a great margarita, which is also helpful <laughs> in life. Um, but that was really a, a leap of faith. And, and I just, I love that. I mean, I, I did some other curriculars too besides that, but that was a, a definite meaningful moment. Yeah. It's so funny you mentioned bartending. Isabel and I actually have a close friend who was a bartender and is one of the most gregarious people I know. I think you kind of it definitely fits your personality. Yeah, and it's funny that that those were the extracurriculars that you kind of ended up stumbling into because even beyond like the classroom, you those really truly prepared you for a lot of the things that you're doing now. Um, I mean, like bartending can oftentimes seem like 
something that you do to like get to where you're going, you know, but I think there's so much that you can get out of that. Um, but I'm really curious, what were the hours like? Well, they were evening hours. And uh, so it was typically like, you know, go in at five or six and end up at 11 or sometimes midnight. Uh-huh. Uh, but but you're right. I never thought about it that way. I really appreciate the way you frame it. I mean, what I loved about bartending is that you kind of were paying attention to the whole scene. You were sort of had your peripheral vision going on about what was happening, but you also had to focus on the detail. And uh, it's not really until this moment that I realized that that was really like practice time to be able to look at the bigger picture, but also to have your spider sense going on be like, no, 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 that person needs a drink. This person wants to check out, you know, is there anything brewing over here that I need to pay attention to? And for most of my career, I have spent facilitating conversations, which we can talk about. Mm -hmm. And I'm just making the connection now that maybe my bartending days, you know, really helped me practice that ability to go abstract to concrete and to really be able to hold both of those spaces and areas of attention at the same time, which isn't a given. And, and, you know, it's not something that we explicitly practice, particularly in our early years. I mean, I don't think teachers be like, now listen, pay attention to the big thing, but also pay attention to your handwriting. So I think these are the life skills that um, we don't name, but are really, really important. Yeah, Yeah, I think this is such a valuable lesson for all the young people, like including us that are listening, that there's no wasted opportunities. Whether you have a part-time job, you can learn from that part-time job. Whether you are taking class that you don't love, but it's a requirement, you can learn from that. Like it's so cool that you're now so many years later are connecting these dots and how it helped you find what you're passionate about and to be good at what you're passionate about today. Well, I'll make one more connection. I really appreciate that, Emily. That again, this is so fun. I didn't, I haven't thought about this in so long. You know, a lot of my work is around teaching people to get comfortable in ambiguity. And if you think about getting into going to bar every day, and you yeah. think exactly what's going to happen. I mean, you certainly don't hope that it doesn't get out of control, but you can pay attention to what is available to you in order to create the best experience for others. And uh, and so again, I think I think that that is more practice area. Like, how do we step into a situation where? Uh, we can't fully predict it. We can't control it. You have to let go from that standpoint, but you can focus on what you can control. Uh, and that's really preparing for what might unfold and knowing what's in your purview, knowing when something is getting out of control that you might need an extra pair of hands or you know, a bouncer to help you so <laughs> much luckily. But, uh, but I think that also gave me a sense of it's okay to go into territory where you won't be able to predict everything that happens. And again, I'll, I'll connect it back to school. One of the things that strikes me now that I've become an accidental educator for the last 10 years and that. parent watching my kids go through schools and they're part of great schools is that so much of our formal education is about getting to write answers. And in many ways, we are yeah. practiced can we get the 100% on our test? Did we do it right? Standardized tests are all about gearing towards easily gradable answers. That is not life. That is not life. So if you think about the amount of time that we spend gearing towards the narrow single answer with what life really needs from us, which is to get comfortable in new territory while still feeling like we have skills behind us that will allow us to actually engage in that and be productive in those environments, I think we have a lot of opportunity to really look at 
how to change those formative years to make us more comfortable in ambiguity. Yeah, I think a lot of the classes that I was really interested in in high school and even before that were very science-based. So we did a lot of like labs and experiments, but you always knew what was going to happen. And I think through some of the internships that I ended up doing in the science world, and then honestly, becoming a part of the D school, I really realized how much of life you really just have no idea what's going to happen and need to figure out. And I think that the scientific method is really, really useful in science, but design thinking, which I feel are like kind of similar, is a really useful tool for building whatever you want out of something that that you don't know where it's going to go. Well, it's such a great point. I mean, listen, I think that learning the scientific process is so invaluable, yeah. particularly when you are asked to bring something new to life. You know, the fact that there is a discipline behind it where you have to articulate your hypotheses mm-hmm. and then you need to ahead of time pregame what you think you are trying to learn, isolate the variables, test it, do it again. There's a lot of that in design. I mean, a lot of the part of the feedback and iteration should be based on a discipline. Yeah. I think a lot of people um, misunderstand design and design thinking, and we could spend time talking about it, as a special talent for those creative mm. few that just come up with this brilliant idea and boom, it's successful. No, that is not the case. <laughs> that is not the case. Mm-hmm. Um, it's true that there are some people that are more comfortable flexing their imagination to ask that adjacent or you know disruptive question to begin with, but that is just the beginning, right? I as you know, ideas are free to some extent. I mean, you can have all kinds of ideas. The question is, can you have the discipline and rigor to figure out if that idea is the right idea? How do you do that? And I think that borrows Isabella and a lot of that discipline and practice that you got in science in high school. And one of the things that I'm really passionate about is helping all educators realize how important imagination is. And in this moment, uh, where we are asked to come up with novel ideas in response to the unfolding elements that's affecting all of us. And of course, we're sitting here six months into this global pandemic. We're experiencing that more acutely than ever. There is no playbook on how to get through a global pandemic. Um, but that doesn't mean it's a free-for-all, you know, that there is a, there's a discipline behind it and a set of practices that we can rely on where we can flex our imagination, but then allow us to then get into a process to see if those ideas are the right ideas. Yeah, mm-hmm. absolutely. Um, so we were watching your TED Talk, and in it, you said you don't need to be a designer to design meaningful conversations. And I'm kind of taking meaningful conversations beyond just like conversations, but like also applying that maybe to to design a meaningful science experiment, you know? And so I'm curious how you would unpack like the question of, what like what do you need to be a designer or like somebody who can design these like conversations and what's maybe the difference between an artist and a designer are they the same thing um, yeah and bringing creativity into all this you just mentioned like you don't have to be some creative mastermind in fact that's not what it is at all there's no strike of creative genius it's hard work and process so elaborate please <laughs> 
Yeah, well, let's, it's probably helpful to, to define design and just not get into that land of um, inside baseball, so to speak, where people mm-hmm. are like, I don't know what they're talking about. Yeah, <laughs> I failed our class. Um, my question <laughs> of design comes from my dear friend and colleague and mentor, Nathan Shedroff, um, who has been a designer uh, for most of his career and started the program that gave me my second or third career start of becoming an educator. He started uh, an MBA program, so Master's in Business Administration, that was housed in a hundred-year-old art school, the California College of the Arts, right? Crazy. And from the beginning, he said, look, our world will require creative leadership. Why do we ask our emerging leaders to get a degree that forces them to park their creativity at the door in order to get the credential to be invited to the boardroom. That's nonsense. We actually need to stoke and foster interdisciplinary thinking that includes creative problem solving and the analytics. So he started the MBA in design strategy about 15 years ago, and I taught there for about 10 years and absolutely loved it. What he says about design he says, design is not, it's not about making things look beautiful. It's not about choosing the right font or the right color. Design is about making intentional choices that set other people up for success. He says, it is my job as a designer to make the choice that helps the person I'm designing for be successful. So we most easily understand that in products that we call well-designed. Like, let's take the iPhone. You know, Apple put design on the map as a strategic thrust. And if you think about, you know, what did Apple do that was so extraordinary? They made choices that allowed their customers to not only get functionality out of their products, right, the iPhone, but to experience delight and joy, mm-hmm. right? So this notion that design is about making choices to help the other person that's experiencing the benefit of your choice to bring them something in their life that adds value in some meaningful way. So to me, this is so exciting because that means all of us designers, right? If you make choices that affect other people, I argue we all do that every day, then you have an opportunity to think of yourself as a designer. So as a parent, I think of myself as a designer. I have choice about how I want to engage my children, for example, in... I don't even know where we're going to go to dinner, you know, or that's the small or when we did travel, where we're going to go on vacation. So, so how am I going to make a choice to trigger the right response from them? Um, And I think about that all the time in my classroom. And I'll give you another specific example. When we start our classes at the D school and I teach a number of classes there, including one called inventing the future. Isabel gets back to your point earlier about getting to write answers and, you know, how do we get comfortable in new territory? Um, we very intentionally spend the first five to 10 minutes doing some active activity that allows our students to be present. Some sort of check-in, some sort of opening exercise that just gets them into a more free-flowing state of mind. That is an intentional choice we make in order to bring out the best in them for the next 90 minutes that we have them, right? That was an intentional design. So I think that we, if we think about what am I trying to trigger in someone else to get back to that definition, am I trying to get them to feel excited to be here? Then I'm going to make a choice that gets them excited to be here. Am I trying to trigger them to be engaged? Then maybe I should start with a question that they can engage with. 
So I just think this is so exciting when we start to think that we have so much more choice than we realized about how to help others be successful in service of a greater goal. Mm -hmm. I love all of what you just said, especially the part where you're talking about how design is made up of choices and how it's the designer's job to think through everything in a creative way, right? You're not just thinking through steps on a checklist. You're thinking through processes and how other people are going to engage with these processes. And this really reminds me of, um, in your TED talk, you mentioned the book, um, Designing Everyday Things, which I actually read for one of my design classes here at Stanford. And I just connected with this book so much. It's so interesting. And it kind of struck me like, this is one of my moments where I started thinking, I need to incorporate design and what I'm going to do in my life. And so translating this back to you, I'm wondering what was a moment when you thought, this is what I want to do with my life? <laughs> I've had several of those moments. I'm glad you like that book. That book was absolutely foundational to me. Um, and one of the things I loved about that book, and I will come back to your question. When I read that book, I realized, oh my gosh, it is not my fault if I don't know how to use a product. I have been failed by the designer. And I, I, I want to tell everyone I know, my grandparents, it's not oh your gosh. fault if you don't get it. Yeah. Uh, you know, and there's so many ways to sort of take that, you know, in, in, um, and apply that in everyday life. It, it was really, that, that blew my mind. And I think that was the inkling of like, oh my gosh. Um, so I, I'll, I'll be honest, I'll share a moment of um, transparency here <laughs> with you and all of your listeners. Oh, wow. I don't really think of myself as a designer. I mean, I really held on to that imposter syndrome of like, I don't know how to make things look beautiful, even though I call myself a designer, my really designer. And it wasn't until we started working on my book, Moments of Impact, about designing strategic conversations that I realized that the medium that I was working in, the medium that I was designing in is, is conversations and learning experiences. And it, that was just as valid as designing for physical things or designing for apps that it was just that the inputs were different, but that the process was no less rigorous. Um, and so, so that was an, a really aha moment for me when I realized, oh, I am a designer of conversations. And one of the reasons why that was hard is that it's not really valued. Um, you don't study to be a designer of conversations. You, um, it's, it's not a thing, right? It's not a thing. So it didn't feel like it had value. And even if you think about one of the most important things that I think all students should learn, which is the ability to facilitate conversations. Who takes a mandatory facilitator class? Nobody. And if you think about in the market how facilitators are honored, um, they're really not. They're like the last people called. They're often thought about as like the timekeeper or the flip chart notes person, at least when we actually met in person. And I think about what is more important when you're spending an hour to get to, to for the person that is able to ask the right question, bring all of the different inputs together in a new and novel way, that is really hard work. That is really hard work. And, and, and if you think about, going back to what we've been talking about, the importance of this moment to come up with new ideas to solve complex challenges, and the fact that those ideas are going to come from bringing together multiple perspectives, 
Like that doesn't happen on its own. It's not like some sort of facilitator pixie dust <laughs> coming down. There's no algorithms in conversation. That is a human algorithm called a facilitator that is there making choices about combining and reframing. And anyway, I'm going off on a bit of a tangent here, but like when I had this insight that conversations could be designed, like products could be designed, this blew my mind. This absolutely blew my mind. Like everything in our life is designed. And so I'm always like, you give me a problem and I'll tell you why it's a design problem. <laughs> So that just, you know, to me was just this like total eye opener that all of us have an opportunity to learn design, to um, give us agency in our lives, um, whether it was designing our conversation, thinking about designing our networks, thinking about designing our school experience, our student experiences, what classes we're going to take, what clubs we're going to take. When you look at it through the lens of design, you now have more choice. So was there like a specific moment maybe when you read the the book that you really were like this is this is why design is so important was it that specific moment when you found that book Yeah it's a great question I mean I honestly think that looking back um so many things that fascinated me I would now say come from a design discipline I didn't have that language then but I will share that growing up my grandfather was in the hospitality business. He was in the restaurant business. And if you've ever spent time thinking about what makes for a great restaurant experience, it's 100% about the design, right? Is there congruency in how somebody walks in with the environment, with the menu, with the quality of the food? All of that comes from really a discipline of design. We would now call that service design, but this has only been later that we've actually added language to it. But I was always fascinated with the restaurant experience, with even like the experience of going to Disney World. When I was a kid, I thought I was going to be president of Walt Disney World. I was just fascinated by how all of these different things came together in a connected and congruent and consistent experience. Um, so, um, so that I think was in the back of my mind and I was probably looking for language to help me understand it. So that was always interesting to me. And then honestly, it was um, my second job out of school. So here I am, um, 22 years old, and I'm essentially working for a design firm. We didn't call it that at the time. We called it a marketing firm. And we were working with companies that wanted to grow their sales. Seems simple enough. And my very, very first consulting assignment was with Dunkin' Donuts. So we on the West Coast here don't really know Dunkin' Donuts, but if any of your listeners are East Coasters, oh, they know Dunkin' Donuts, particularly if they live in the Northeast. So this was in the early 90s, and somehow America had just discovered that the, like donuts were fattening. Like that was, a, that was a problem. You know, that donuts were fried. Like that was some mystery. And all of a sudden, like all these like new health studies came out about how we had to pay attention to our fat intake and our caloric intake. And, and Dunkin' Donuts was like beside themselves. They're like, oh my gosh, we're not going to have a future. This is terrible for us. So they hired our little consulting firm to help them figure out how to stay alive um, amidst a time when every single market research study that anybody did on, on eating habits said that like everybody was on a diet, nobody wanted to eat fattening things and they were done. Okay. So at the same time, there was this tiny little startup that was happening in like Georgia in the Southern Eastern part of the United States. It may have been North Carolina or Virginia or somewhere, um, called Krispy Kreme and word had it that like Krispy Kreme, there were lines like 
starting at four in the morning to get access to these fresh donuts. So there's something interesting happening here, right? Every market study that was statistically significant was saying that Americans were never, ever going to eat a fattening food again. And yet, what was the evidence suggested that people were really excited to get these fresh donuts. So they sent me down 22 years old to figure out why were people standing in line to get donuts. So I had the biggest video camera you can imagine. It was like pre, 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 you know, cameras and phones. And I'm just interviewing people. It's like six in the morning. Like, why are you here? And the responses I got for them were just incredible. Like, ah, oh, these are the greatest donuts in the world. I have a really terrible day ahead of me. But if I start off with these fresh donut, it's going to be amazing. To like another woman was like, listen, I'm here to get three dozen donuts because if I bring in donuts to my colleagues, I'll be the hero. And they're going to say yes to everything I want to say. To like the parent that is like, I really need this teacher conference to go well. So I'm bringing it. So all these reasons that those statistically significant um, studies missed, which is called the human experience, the human experience. So I brought back this footage. I didn't even know what I had. And we shared it to the executives of Dunkin' Donuts and they went bananas. They went, this was like their saving grace. And what they realized was that talking about the functional utility of food was only one part of the equation. The other part of the equation was the emotional experience that it delivered for people. And that there was all kinds of reasons why people we're going to eat, continue to eat donuts and to, because donuts help them have a better day. And long story short, our research, the, what we would call ethnographic research, where you get approximate and you really understand the needs of people from a human standpoint, help them expand their coffee line. So they said, you know what? We're not going to create a low-fat donut, which is where we were going, because that would actually ruin our brand faster than if we just leaned in the fact that we have this quick reward and we're going to give it, them an even better reward. So long story, this helped me understand that there was a process to really better articulate what humans needed in ways that weren't readily available. And at the end of the day, that is what design does. Design mm -hmm. allows you to get very close to people that you are serving, that you are working for, that you are working with to say, what do they really need? Not even what they say they need, because a lot of times people aren't able to articulate it and sometimes they even like lead you astray. But can you observe what's going on in their life? Can you make some inferences about what that means in terms of what might create value for them? Can you bring a new idea to life, even in its early form, so that you can get feedback from those people in order to make it better? And then how do you operationalize once you've gotten evidence that that idea actually has merit? That is design. That is design. You learn so many things once again from an opportunity that sounds kind of funny on the surface. Dunkin' Donuts, Krispy Kreme, these donut companies. But you said you were interested in politics in college. Like it seems like it came out of nowhere almost. And so this kind of brings us to our closing question of a moment in your life when you were making a decision, you had something that you really wanted to do, you were trying to start your own life, and people were just kind of like, this doesn't connect for me. Like, why are you doing this? People are kind of pushing back on you. Maybe it's influential people. Maybe it's your parents. Um, Isabel, do you want to take us away with the last question? Yeah. So this is something that we like to call our mom. I got this moment. Um, a moment where you kind of took a leap of faith in spite of the voices in your life that are really influential that may have been pushing back. So we'd love it if you would just walk us through that connection. How did you get from political science and government, which seems so far away from design, but then 
then took that and moved into design and even incorporated those now with Vote by Design um, and many of the other things like um, Design the President. I know I participated in that one. So yeah, I would love it if you could walk us through how you made that connection. Yeah, Yeah, take us full circle here, Lisa. (laughs) Uh, many mom, I got this moments, probably I'll have one shortly after we wrap up here today. Um, but I think the biggest mom, I got this moment, you know, happened when I, uh, graduated business school. And as I said, I was an East coaster and I had a great job lined up at a, probably the most prestigious consulting firm in New York city. And this was a coup. I mean, these were very, very hard to get. And, um, this was, this was a, you know, this was a kind of career opener, like anyone, you know, who would have heard that I accepted this offer and I was going to go to this firm would be like, check, check for life, you know, check, 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 check. And at the same time, I had started dating my now husband who lived in the Bay Area. And I went out to spend the summer with him um, before going back to accept this firm. And while we were out there, this was 99. I was out there. This was like the beginning of, you know, internet 1.0. There was so much entrepreneurial activity happening. And you know, at the core, you could probably gather I'm very entrepreneurial at heart. I was president of the Entrepreneurs Club when I was in business school. And I just like couldn't get over the creative energy out here. And one of the people that I met had just started a startup, like 20 people, but got backing from the top VCs. And the startup was focused on measuring the customer experiences of websites. Essentially, is the design of these early websites doing what the companies want them to do? And I was like, this is the most exciting. It was like everything I had done before because I had come off of four years of working with companies like Dunkin' Donuts, helping them in the retail spaces to improve their experiences. Now I had a chance to really understand what was happening in the digital space that allowed people to understand their customer experiences. Now it's a full field. It's UX and customer experience. There was nothing. There was nothing. Websites were being created only by engineers. They had no idea to connect it to the customer experience. Mm-hmm. So this was a startup. It's the Wild West. Yeah. And, and they were like, listen, we want you to work here. We want you to start up our consulting practice because you understand design. You understand how to talk to marketing people. And you can understand how to communicate the value of a new discipline that doesn't yet exist. You need to join this. And I, I it was like the most exciting offer. Now, Grant, I had an offer. I was going to make a lot of money with a firm that people knew about and were impressed with. I was set for life. So what do I do? Mom, I got to tell you something. I'm turning down that offer. I'm going to move to the Bay Area. I'm going to work for a company that you've never heard of. And I'm going to do a job that doesn't exist. Are you with me? (laughs) That was it. (laughs) And And she was like, I, you know, luckily, listen, the truth is my mom has always been on my side. It was honestly like, dad, I got this. I mean, that was the harder sell. And, um, and what he said to me, I'll never forget it. He said, you know, I really, it's new to me. And, you know, I, I knew what you were doing before. I don't really understand what this is, but I've never seen you more excited. I've never seen you happier. I've never seen you more fired up and I believe in you. And so I want you to go for it. And that was just an incredible moment of trust. That was just incredible. And the truth is, it was an incre- it was an unbelievable experience. I'm still connected to those people today, 20 years later. Um, the company didn't survive, but we as a community, and I think many of my colleagues are really leading the field in UX. And, very and you survived. I survived. And more importantly, it gave me confidence that 
it's okay to take a leap of faith. Like, you know, and I say this to a lot, particularly to a lot of designers that are excited to take their design passion into the world. As, as, as a popular as design is getting, still it's not really understood. And it can be very crestfallen to say to a new graduate, the world is not yet looking for you. They need you, but they don't know that they need you. And so for me, that first experience was an opportunity to say, I am going to create my own way. I am going to create, I, I, I know there's value in here. Part of my job is to translate that value to other people so that they can get it. I'm not trying to convince them. I'm trying to help educate them about why this is so important. So I first had to educate my parents why I got this. I can move 3000 miles away. Um, and it has just given me, you know, just an absolute um, career of joy. There is not a day that goes by that I don't learn something, that I don't feel proud about what I'm doing and take this opportunity. I know we're wrapping up here to say, you know, in the last year I've been applying that passion towards design and what design can do to give us an uh, agency to the voting process. And we've created an incredible program called Vote by Design, which really identified, started for design that Young people who get a bad rap for not getting engaged in politics are not apathetic. And I don't care what study you show me. It's like that Dunkin' Donuts study. I don't believe you. You are looking at the wrong data. Young people have not been given the opportunity to engage in ways that they can see themselves make a difference. It is an education problem. It is not an apathy problem. So we created a very short experience that allows all young voters to better understand how they can become independent thinkers in a process that has gotten out of control. And to me, that is not only the short-term opportunity to get young voters involved, it is the long-term investment in democracy. So I encourage all of you to go see Vote by Design. We have students running programs and would love for all of you to experience this short way to see yourself as designers of democracy and our future. I just want to wrap up the interview now by saying how thankful we are that you were able during all of your craziness preparing Vote by Design to come on, spend a little while with us. I'm sure everyone listening is going to relate to the emotions that you talked about. They're universal. And this is just such an exciting chat to have with someone who's so successful now to take us back to how you got there. So thank you so much for this, Lisa. I really enjoyed myself. Yeah, much. It's fun to go down memory lane. I really appreciate it. I loved your questions. I love that you're doing this. This in and of itself is an act of design. So, so thank you for including me. Well, thank you. We had an incredible time. We want to thank you, our listeners, for listening. You're always welcome to pull up a chair with us on Mom, I Got This. A big shout out to our music composer, Tony Rodriguez. If you loved all the tracks you heard as much as we do, check out his stuff on Spotify and Apple Music. Thank you to the awesome girls in the Swade marketing and design teams for our beautiful graphics. And of course, another huge thank you to Swid, the advisory board, and our president, Nicole Orsak, for making the process so easy and enjoyable. Join us next time as we ask, what role does design play in venture capital? And how do you find a good work-life balance?